this morning, we are going to be uh, looking primarily at one passage, uh, and there's a lot of passages we can go to, but one of the chief passages we uh, look at as we talk about citizenship and our role uh, in a government or state as citizens is Romans chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. Now, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I'll bring the text up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you, are, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to his people today. So we are in this series on the doctrine of Christian vocation. Vocation being the Latin word for calling, Christian calling. How are we called to live? And uh, we're bringing this graphic up on the screen here about the Christian vocation. Christian calling uh, can generally be broken up into these four areas that we are called, these four aspects of Christian calling, that we are called in the area of our family, called in the area of our work, called in the area of the church, and called in the area of uh, citizen, uh, citizenship. And, uh, and so these, uh, and, and, and what we looked at at the very first was how God's people are to live as holy and royal priests. That, that's our general calling is to live as holy and royal priests, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, offering up our spiritual sacrifices. And these spiritual sacrifices, we saw then, are essentially the work of our lives through faith, which are made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And we have considered thus far our calling as Christians in the areas of family and work. Today, we are going to consider our calling as citizens Given the nature of today's politics and government, how our politics has been transformed into a form of perverse entertainment, a sermon regarding citizenship can be fraught with all kind of potential pitfalls and landmines. And so I want to be very clear what this sermon is not. This sermon is not the endorsement or condemnation of any political person, party, or platform. A lot of peas in that sentence. Because if we did that, we would be missing the forest for the trees. Uh, our goal today is simple yet lofty. We are going to define what citizenship is biblically, 
and then what and then consider what citizenship might look like in our context. Now I've noted in each of the areas so far of work and family, I've noted that each of these has basically you, you, there are literally books written on these on these uh, these subjects, and you could do a whole series on work, you could do a whole series on family, and similarly you could do a whole series on citizenship. And so that means that what we'll be presenting today are simply uh, um, primarily uh, scriptural principles for us to consider and to apply as we think about uh, fulfilling our calling as citizens and uh, as Christian citizens specifically. So let's begin with uh, defining citizenship. Now, in order to do that, we need to consider uh, what we would call the nature of authority, because if you're going to talk about citizenship, then you have to talk about authority, right? Who has the authority to do what? That's the basic idea of citizenship and nationhood. When um, uh, last year in seventh grade, when I was tutoring Boaz's class, uh, they memorized a map of the world. Well, you've noticed that our maps do not conform necessarily to geographic boundaries, right? So there's the natural features and then what we call the political features. Natural features being mountains and ranges and all these kind of natural borders and things that are designed. And then there's the political map, the political features, which are the lines that we draw, right? And so, uh, and so, it's a we, so what is it that makes those up? Who gets to say that Utah's here and Mississippi's here, right? These are questions of authority. How do we operate? And so all authority, according to the Apostle Paul, uh, and especially, we would say, governmental authority is derivative authority. That is, the authority of the government is not given to itself by itself. And we would actually argue that um, government is not ultimately given to itself uh, by the people, even. Uh, this is actually one of the key differences between the American Revolution and the French Revolution. The French Revolution believed that people defined their government and, and thus through the government created human rights. And so they would determine what rights humans should have through the government. That is the French Revolution take, and also a take that marked through the theistic tradition of deism, which was not very helpful. But the American Revolution was centered upon the, what we called inalienable rights that are recognized, that must be recognized by a government. That they, because they are granted to us by our creator because we are made in the image of God. The authority of the government ultimately is derived from God's authority. And the existence of such governing bodies, whether they're democracies or monarchies, uh, is that the, they are owed to God's will as he has instituted these governments in his providence. There is no government on earth that God has not gone with like, oops, oh, you know, that's how North Korea came about. You know, it's like, ah, oh, I wasn't looking. It just happened, all right? Since the authority of the government is derived, so some say, we'll say, wait, but this is kind of like divine right. You know, someone says, oh, we get our authority from God. Doesn't it sound like they can do whatever they want? Actually, it's the exact opposite. That because authority is derived from God's authority, that means it is limited in its scope and purpose. The primary job of the government, according to the Apostle Paul, the government of any nation, is to be a terror to bad conduct by bearing the sword. The state is to carry out the temporary, temporal wrath of God upon evildoers and to serve as a restraining force 
of evil, a force to restrain evil in the world. We find this confirmed in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, where Peter there instructs Christians to be subject to every human institution, including emperors or governors, because they have sent, been sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so there's this kind of two sides to this coin of human authority and governmental institutions. On the one side are the the purpose, the limits, and accountability of government and that authority, the governmental authority. And on the other side, the submission of Christians to that governmental authority. And so, but we need to, we're not quite where we can move forward yet. So we need to uh, delve a little bit deeper here and, and consider the relationship of the church and the state. That's a, that's a phrase that gets thrown around so much uh, it, it today. Uh, and actually, in my preparation for the sermon, because we were covering such a wide swath of things, it's so much to go to. Uh, my default when I get overwhelmed with the vast amount of information is I go to the scriptures and I go to the Westminster Confession. We go to the larger catechism, the shorter catechisms. And then I'll even go to our Book of Church Order, that uh, beautiful binder that you're all jealous that you don't have. So you can buy your own copy. It's available for purchase. So um, scintillating reading. So, uh, but... And, and just so we're clear, just so you know, like we have the scriptures that are the inerrant, infallible word of God that do not change. And then we have the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is our church's official confession. This is what we believe the Bible teaches, and it's a, and it's a wonderful summary of the scriptures uh, And then and, uh, that functions as our confession of faith as a church, as a Presbyterian church in America. And then we have the Book of Church Order, which is basically taking the Westminster Confession of Faith and, 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 and the scriptures and saying, this is how we do church in uh, uh, um, really like wheels on the ground. This is how we do it. And these are all the rules. This is how we ordain ministers. This is, how, how, this is what Presbyterians do. This is how everything's organized and functions. It's how you become a member, stuff like that. And so I was looking, I was looking through those, and, and we're going and, and to be talking about uh, the, our calling as a church next week. But, but, the, but church comes up when you talk about the state or the government uh, uh, because uh, we, people often make two errors. They have to make one of two errors when they talk about church and state. That either they separate church and state so utterly and completely that they never come within like any kind of nearness or range to each other. Or the opposite error is they overlap so completely that you can't tell them apart. And you can see both of those, uh, those today uh, um, at, at work. In, in a lot of the political fights. And so, uh, and this is how you can get Christians, sometimes Christians in the same church, where one Christian will say, it is pagan idolatry to pledge allegiance to the flag. I've had Christians tell me that. Um, and, then, and then have another Christian that say the, that the fact that we don't have a 4th of July worship service celebrating Independence Day explicitly uh, is like a disappointment to the Lord, that he's not happy with us because we don't do that. All right. And so, and, so one of the, and so one of the things that Scripture makes clear for us, and not only Scriptures, but also those who looked at the Scriptures before us and applied them to the life of the church, thinking about the, those who wrote the Westminster Confession in the 1640s and those who, uh, who put together our, the, the, our Book of Church Order, the bulk of which was written in the late 1800s, by the way, um, uh, that it said, look, the Scriptures teach that the church and the state have distinct powers and jurisdictions. 
The, our, our book of church order actually describes them as, as, as the church and state as planets operating on different concentric orbits. Meaning that, you know, uh, the earth has uh, an orbit around the sun, right? And then Mars has an orbit around the sun, okay? There, uh, so now, there are times when Mars and earth may line up, but they're not on the same track. And that's what that's what that's what a book of church order even describes the the nature of the church and the state that we're on different tracks. We have different powers. The church church and state have different powers, responsibilities and jurisdictions. There are times where they line up. There's times where they connect like that. But they they actually but they but they do not actually uh, but they're not on the same track. And so and so and so we have to be careful about that. Christ himself teaches this. Uh, because he tells us that his kingdom is not of this earth, that his kingdom is not spread by the sword. And, and bear in mind the sword that the Lord gives to governments as a restraining for evil. That is not how the kingdom of God is spread. Uh, it's, uh, and, and, so, it, it, and so Christ says that the kingdom of God is not of this earth. It's not of this world. Then we would be mistaken to assume that any government, whether it's the American government or the Holy Roman Empire, uh, to say that is the kingdom of God. Further, Christ taught us to render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's and, the, and to God the things that are God's. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, God doesn't own all the universe and time and space, but it does mean that in his providence, he has given certain properties and authority and responsibilities to the state and other properties and authority and responsibilities to the church. The state cannot impose a creed upon the church. Neither can the church impose a form of government upon the state. Now, this doesn't mean that the state has free reign to do whatever it wants. The responsibility to restrain evil includes, and this actually going to our confession. Our confession actually has two chapters to speak to this. It has a chapter about uh, what are the responsibilities on the, on the magistrate, which is a fancy word for civil officer. It's a judge, it's a, it's a politician, it's a king, it's a president. That's, that's what the magistrate is. And then it has another chapter on Christian liberty. And so, and so he has these two chapters. In the chapter uh, on the magistrate, it's, it says that, and essentially he's talking about the, the responsibility of the government. It's, uh, our confession says that it is, it, is, it is responsible that the unity and peace be preserved in the church. And that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God be duly settled, administrated, and observed. Now, that's a lot, and that's going to get real complicated as you see how does that actually work out in, in a political system. But again, what, what it does mean, though, is that, is that the, the state's responsibility essentially is to protect the church, to uphold the church, so that way the church can operate freely and faithfully according to the commands of God. And so to the state, God has given the sword. Uh, it is given a responsibility to protect the church, so that way the church can thrive. And to the church, the Lord has given the keys to the kingdom. Peter, who lived under the reign of Nero, Nero was not exactly the best emperor. He started off kind of good, and then he kind of tanked pretty hard uh, toward, uh, towards the end there. Um, but he said this. 
He said he summed up this whole thing in, in, in just two short phrases, two short sentences. Fear God, honor the other. 1 Peter 2.17. And so all this means, as we think about the nature of authority, the relationship between the church and the state, uh, that, that we are called to be godly citizens in an ungodly world. How do we, you know, that's our challenge. How do we live as godly citizens in an ungodly world? And even at times an ungodly nation. God's providence has made us citizens of our country here in the United States. Our challenge is to figure out how to fear God and honor the emperor in our own context. How can we render unto God the things that are God's and under Caesar the things that are Caesar's here? What complicates the issue, of course, is that the world has fallen, that every human government is corrupted with sin. Governments have and continue to abuse their authority to oppress and persecute Christians. But our calling remains to live as holy and royal priests in our nation. But we have to recognize that this calling for Christians is, uh, is to live as holy and royal priests in whatever nation God's providence has brought them to be citizens of doesn't mean that someone can't move somewhere and become a citizen of that country, but it does mean that whatever citizenship we have, we are called to honor it as priests of God. It is striking when you read the writings of the early apologist, Justin Martyr, who appeals to the Roman authorities to, to just do one small thing, please, stop killing Christians. Not only does he appeal to the immorality of what they are doing, it, not only does he, does he inform them of the judgment of God that they are certainly incurring upon themselves by these evil deeds, he also points out that Christians are great citizens. He's like, we pay our taxes. We live quiet lives. We support the state. We don't, we're not trying to break away. We just want to be left alone. Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion follows the same route as the cover letter there to that work uh, is written to the king of France who was persecuting Protestants. And he says kind of sarcastically, he says, well, you know, Mr. King, um, uh, perhaps the church is trying to overthrow uh, your kingdom by, you know, all these Christians living quiet and simple lives and ceaselessly praying for your prosperity and the prosperity of your reign and nation. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, maybe we are trying to, we're really bad at, at, bad at rebellions if that's the case. And so we are reminded that the church's calling is to make disciples of all nations, as Jesus said. And when those disciples are made in those nations, they ought to honor their calling as citizens of those nations by fearing God and honoring their rulers. So cons now considering all of this, we can, see, we can see that fulfilling God's calling as citizens can look very different depending on where and when we live. It's going to vary widely. And so with all these principles in mind, we need to consider now how we might live as godly citizens today. And there is a fundamental principle that is that that is um is one that really kind of grates against us but it is a fundamental principle which is that as christians we are called to submit to authority submission to authority unfortunately requires more submission than many are comfortable with paul's prescription 
is for believers in Rome who are presently under, again, the reign of Nero, Christians elsewhere at the time and even now, to submit to the authorities over them by obeying the laws, maintaining good conduct, paying their taxes, showing respect and honor to those whom is owed according to the authority of that person's office. We see Paul actually model this in the book of Acts with the Jewish and Roman authorities. Paul showed respect to the Jewish high priest who, when you read it, you go, he does not deserve respect. But Paul basically insults him, and then when he finds out he's the high priest, he apologizes to everyone. Because he, and he quotes the scriptures that says, you shall not do that. That you should honor authority. He shows respect to King Agrippa and, and Felix, even though these men were certainly not believers or godly men. And let us not forget that it was at times Roman authority and Roman laws that protected Paul from being killed by the Jews and the Gentiles. We also were also instructed uh, by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, to pray, intercede, and give thanks for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? So that we Christians, he says, can live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. Okay. But what about civil or uncivil disobedience? Because the question does come, is there a time to deny submission to authority uh, and to rebel against the authority that is over us? I mean, our country, after all, was founded by a revolution. The only minister, lest we forget, to sign the Declaration of Independence was a Presbyterian minister named John Witherspoon. Revolution's in our blood. Well, the answer is yes. When authorities seek to compel us to sin against God, we must say with the apostles, we must obey God rather than men. But let us all bear in mind that, that the apostles also rejoiced in their beating they got for doing that because they took part in the sufferings of Christ. Further, there is a case to be made, as the founding fathers made it, that a governmental authority can break the bonds of its obligations and responsibilities to such a degree that the only choice left is a separation by the use of force. However, such moments, we must recognize, are rare, and they must be the last resort. Consider how strongly worded our own confession is on this subject. A confession, mind you, that was written during, in the middle of the English Civil War between Protestants and the Stuart King Charles I. They say, it is the duty for, of people to pray for magistrates, for civil officers, to honor their persons, to pay them tribute or other dues, to obey their lawful commands, and to be subject to their authority for conscience' sake. Again, we need to take note that this is the official confession of our church. We, we believe the Bible teaches, and something that we believe to be a most wonderful summary of Christian teaching. Consider the responsibilities that are assigned to us according to the confession in God's word. Pray for your politicians, especially the ones who have direct authority over you. Honor them, pay your taxes, obey their lawful commands, okay, there's an important modifier there, and submit yourself to their authority. They continue, 
infidelity or difference in religion does not make void the magistrate's just and legal authority nor free the people from their due obedience to them. The point is that while disobedience and opposition to ungodly authority is at times warranted, on the average day, godly submission to authority is going to be the call. Now, submission to authority also means meaningful engagement in our political system. Thankfully, we do not have kings and queens. And even if we have complaints about our, the, the state of our current politics, and believe me, if you want to hear mine, you can ask me later. All right, I've got plenty of them. Okay, just be ready for, to sit for a while. All right, but, uh, but we don't have kings and queens. We have a democratic republic where the people determine their leaders through voting. And so it is incumbent upon us as Christian citizens to seek out leaders who will do what is right, who will protect the church from attack, who will bring about godly reforms. But too often, people are on a search to justify their desires for personal vengeance or simply looking for permission to cast off the biblical demand for submission to authority. Sometimes people are just looking for the authorization to hate someone. So what do we do as a church if we are not going to readily and regularly entertain the thoughts of armed revolution? As Christian citizens, it is our duty individually and together as the church to call obedience to the moral law in society. To call for obedience in the moral law in society. The moral law is often what we call the Ten Commandments. And there are three primary uses identified, going back to Martin Luther, uh, of the law. And that first, the law functions as a mirror to show us our sin and our need for grace and to drive us to the good news of the gospel. The moral law also, secondly, functions as a light upon our feet, showing us the pathway of obedience and, uh, and how to live a godly life as citizens. And third, the moral law functions as principles of conduct for use in society. We believe the basic commands of God are written in the hearts of men. I mean, even, even as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, we believe that the, that the command that worship God only is in, written in the hearts of men, but, it, but they have denied it and twisted it and rebelled against it. But this is also why every society has laws of one sort or another governing the freedom of religion, murder, stealing, marriage, and so on. Those laws look differently, but they still have them. Because there's, there's something in human society that says we have to regulate these things. There's something here to protect. And so it is, it is the duty of us as Christian citizens to promote religious freedom, to promote the sanctity of life, to promote uh, the upholding of the, the biblical idea, and honestly we would say biblical and natural idea of marriage, the, 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 the concept of personal property is fundamental in the scriptures. And it often comes up that when we do this, we're just pushing our beliefs onto others. I've even recently heard with the overturning of Roe v. Wade to be like, well, I don't care what you believe about people. Don't push your Bible on my body. I've heard that so many times. And, but we maintain it is not mere religious belief that we hold these things, that we say everyone should live by these things. It's not mere religious belief that we are made male and female. It's not mere religious belief that marriage is only proper between one man and one woman it is the foundational fabric for society. It is not mere, mere religious belief that we ought not to destroy life in the womb. 
We can see these truths clearly stated in Scripture, but we see them lived out in the actions, even in nature itself. We can see unbelieving people from every nation living out this reality because this is how we were made. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 2, when Gentiles obey the law, they prove the law. And they put those who know the law and disobey it to shame. We maintain that the violation of these principles bring harm to humanity, not flourishing. In declaring these truths and calling for reforms, even enacting reforms as we can through lawful means, we seek to love our neighbor and to seek their good. And so we call for obedience to the moral law in society as Christian citizens. And, and then, and finally, we use our freedom to love others. There's a real tension between submission and liberty of conscience, between submission and Christian liberty. One of my seminary professors, uh, you know, he, said, he said the four scariest words in the Christian church are holiness, repentance, and Christian liberty. Right? There's some people that are afraid of people doing things that, 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 that they don't do. But then there's also some people who take Christian liberty to, uh, uh, to the wrong place. There's a problem also when folks cite the liberty of conscience or Christian liberty flippantly. And, and, and essentially, by, essentially saying that simply by, by virtue of being a Christian, that Christian liberty means I do whatever I want to do and I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. That is not Christian liberty. Even our Westminster Confession is clear in the chapter on the subject that God alone is Lord of the conscience. And many people say amen until you realize that it's the Lord who is the Lord of the conscience. That means uh, someone else is not the Lord of my conscience, but guess what? It means I'm not the Lord of my conscience either. The Lord is the Lord of my conscience. And while there are many people in our society that would seek to laden us with all manner of burdens and commands. I mean, this is something that, you know, it's, it's so funny because in the, you know, back in the day it was like, oh, the people on the political right, they're the fuddy-duddies, they're the ones who were just the strict stereotypical puritanical people saying you can't do this you can't do this you can't do this shame 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 you know how the tables have turned now to where now there's so many people on the left side of the aisle who are now saying shame i mean literally will come and scream shame at you <laughs> like they'll literally scream shame at you and yell at you and and tell you all the things you can't do and why you can't buy tacos at that stand over there and why you can't go see that movie and you can't do all those things there are many people of all different stripes Seeking to burden us with commands, telling us what we can do and we can't do. But we, in response, must beware of abusing Christian liberty in order to satisfy our own sinful desires. Our own confession says that if we use Christian liberty as an excuse to practice or cherish any sin and the lust of the flesh, that we destroy the purpose of Christian liberty. Have we ever asked ourselves, what is the purpose of my Christian liberty? Not do I possess it, but what is the purpose of it? Well, the confession says the purpose of Christian liberty is that we might serve the Lord without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. That's the purpose of our freedom in Christ, that we might serve the Lord. Paul and Peter both make this point explicitly, that our freedom is not to be used as for sin or as a cover-up for evil but to live as servants of God, even serving one another. Further, our confession says that if we use Christian liberty as an excuse to oppose any lawful power or the lawful exercise of governing power, then we are actually resisting the ordinance of God. 
It doesn't mean that we don't oppose laws that we think are bad or that we don't oppose unlawful exercises of power or unlawful laws. But it means that we ought to do so carefully, thoughtfully, prayerfully, biblically, and not merely as an emotional reaction based upon contemporary partisan lines. Now at this point, someone might say, Okay, Eric, you didn't really help clear things up for me about what citizenship is. It sounds really hard. It sounds really complicated. And one thing I have to say is, and for my own, my own self, when it, comes to the, when it comes to politics, I tr it's not that I avoid things that make me angry by just shutting my ears off, but I want to avoid those streams that are sitting there and they who are sit, who simply exist to make me angry. To just let me show you today who you need to be raging about. Look at that Republican over there. Look at that Democrat over there. Look what this school board did over there. Look where this over there. And then we just sit there in impotent rage, shaking our fist at the heavens. Rather, we should consider what's going on in our own county, what's going on in our own city. What's going on with the school board? What are the laws that are here? Who's the, who's, who's the mayor? Who's on the council? Who, what, what are those things that we can actually affect? Those things that we can actually change, that we can actually champion godly reforms? Then we can actually do something instead of just getting angry and shaking our fist at our TVs or our phones. And so, and so if, if you say this is hard and complicated, then you're paying attention because it is. Just as living as priests of God, but also like when we talk about living as priests of God with our family, that's hard and messy too, isn't it? To love our families with all the mess that's going on there. It's hard to live as priests of God in the places of our labor and our work. That's messy too. So we need to contemplate the nature of our citizenship. And so the nature of authority, the interplay between church and state is found principally in the scriptures. Let us consider what our right and godly submission is to the authority under which we live. And we need to consider the ways in which we need to cry out before our nation against the sins and evils of our government, of our society, to pray for revival and reform and to, and to execute revival and reform where we can. But then on a daily basis to consider how we might use our Christian liberty as a means of good to serve and love our neighbor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as Christians you call us to follow Christ and that we are Christian servants, Christian citizens, that our citizenship of any nation is marked and defined by the fact that we are Christians. And so, Lord, we pray that with the very serious problems that we face as a nation, the immorality and the corruption that has gripped so many different institutions, so many different aspects and levels of our government and, and academics, and, uh, and Lord, that we that help us, Father, to get a clear picture, to open our eyes, to see, how we can live personally as godly citizens here in Meridian, 
in the, in the communities that we live, in the midst of the people in which we interact, that we may seek tangible and, and, and tangible ways that we can bring about godly reforms to promote uh, uh, promote uh, families and marriage and life and flourishing for the people of this area in which we live, that we may be salt and light here where we are. And Lord, help us, Father, to, to ignore, to throw off the things that would cause us to be, uh, to, to be distracted from that. And Lord, we pray that we would consider most of all, how we may bring you glory. And we may live as royal and holy priests of God, as citizens of the United States, or in whatever country we belong. Father, we pray that you would bless us in this. In Christ's holy name, amen.